Well, let's pray together. Father, thank you for your mercies that are new every morning. Thank you for your love that is steadfast. Thank you for your grace that is abounding, even to the chief of sinners. We pray you'd help us tonight, cause us that we will think your thoughts after you. We pray that you would make us to long for your presence. In Jesus' name, amen. About three years ago at this time, I was putting the finishing touches on my uh, dissertation, and I don't expect that any of you would ever want to read it, so I would like to read for you some of what I wrote as part of the preface to that project. I wrote, thank you to the youth leaders who have served faithfully with me during this process, helping me to teach the Bible and to make disciples of students. I am overwhelmed when I think of the students who continue to pass through the Grace Baptist Church Youth Ministry. Their interest in the Bible and in the things of God is something most youth pastors only dream of. I feel as though I have lived a dream in getting to search the Scriptures with them. So, to all of you, I do express my gratitude to you. And one last time, let us search the Scriptures together. So I invite you to turn to Hebrews 12 in your copy of the Bible. Last week, I gave the introduction to tonight's message, and I posed the question for us to consider, if I am a Christian, how am I to think about my sin? Uh, in your bulletin, you, you have a few more questions like that to maybe get your thoughts going. Uh, you see them there at the top of the notes page. Is my struggle with sin unusual for someone who knows Jesus? Could my sinfulness be an indication that I'm not a Christian? Is my sin really a big deal, or do I have freedom now that I'm in Christ? The reason I think these questions are worth considering even as kind of a last charge from me to you is because of the at least relative frequency that this question or, or one like it was asked to me by students over the past 10 years or so. I think it is an important question. I, th I think if you are a perceptive Christian, you will ask this. Um, did I say perceptive question? Okay. If you are a perceptive Christian, you will ask that question or one like it uh, in some form or fashion throughout your walk with Christ. Uh, if you're unable to answer this question from the Bible, it will, I think, lead to either pride on the one hand or despair on the other hand. It could lead to pride because we think that, that no 
uh, we think that our sin is no big deal, or it could lead to despair because we think that every sin we commit is eternally condemning to us. And Hebrews 12 is not the only place in the Bible that helps us answer this question, but it is a helpful chapter because it contains the answer within a historical framework, helping us to see how God's people have considered sin and and its effects on them throughout history. Uh, I'm pretty convinced that the letter to the Hebrews is actually a written sermon So the author wrote this to preach it to the ones who would receive it, and and that the writer is using the Old Testament as his primary text, and he's expositing it, and he's explaining it, and he's applying it to New Testament followers of Jesus in light of Jesus' own life and death and resurrection. So, for example, even in this chapter, even in Hebrews 12, you would notice that the author cites passages from Genesis, Exodus, Deuteronomy, Job, Proverbs, Isaiah, Haggai, maybe even others that I missed, but he's, he's using texts from those books to give his teaching in this chapter. So in other words, those books and the passages that he's using are his, are the primary text for this portion of his Sermon, just like Hebrews 12, is the primary text for my message to you tonight. So I want to re- review briefly what we said last week when we looked at Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Uh, we made the following observations. We said, first, we are commanded to lay aside sin, and, we, and second, we lay aside sin by looking to Jesus. We're commanded to lay aside sin, and we lay aside sin by looking to Jesus. Those two verses are worthy of many more comments, but for the sake of tonight's message, it seems that the best way to comment even on them is to just continue on in the passage so that you can see this discussion, this flow of argument. You can hopefully understand how these instructions fit into the scope of the history of the Bible. So, as you go from here and you continue to wonder about how to think biblically about your own sin as a believer, I'm going to suggest that you respond to those questions with five questions of your own that Hebrews 12 seeks to answer. So on your notes page, you've got the questions listed out and some blanks to fill in. Of course, even, even by wording it that way, I'm, I'm assuming, I understand, I'm assuming that everyone here is a believer. Uh, That's not to give you false assurance if you're not. It's simply that this letter was written to believers, and and I understand most of you to be believers, and, and so I think that's the best way to approach this. So five questions to ask as we consider our own sin as believers. Number one, first question, where should I look? Where should I look? We've really already been given the answer to this question, because it's found in verse 2. Verse 2 says, looking to who? Looking where? To Jesus. We look to Jesus. But verse 2 is even more specific because where is Jesus? According to the end of verse 2, he is seated where? At the 
right hand of the throne of God. Now, I understand that you and I cannot literally go outside and look up into the clouds and see Jesus seated at the right hand of God's throne with our physical eyes. And the author of Hebrews understands that as well. But the reality is that when you are faced with sin and with all its heaviness and weightiness, you will look somewhere. You might look for excuses. You might look for someone or something else to blame. You might look to justify yourself. You might look for any kind of self-help method. Or you might look for something stronger to numb the pain and the guilt brought about by sin. But you're going to look somewhere. And according to verses 1 and 2, the way to actually lay aside the sin that clings so closely is to look to Jesus. Verse 3 is similar. It reads, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Consider him. That, that's, that is to say, think about him. Set your mind on him. That's how we look to him. So what is it that we should consider about Jesus? The verse says, consider that he endured from sinners such hostility against himself. Consider that Jesus himself was the object of sin's hostility because he endured it directly from sinners while he was on the cross. That's what we should consider about Jesus. And the reason we should consider that about Jesus, according to the end of verse 3, is so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. So Jesus endured the cross, he endured hostility, the hostility of sinners on the cross, and his doing so fuels our own endurance as we try to obey verses 1 and 2, which is that we are to run with endurance the race that is set before us. Sin is hostility towards God. And Jesus endured from sinners that hostility against himself, which means that our sin is hostility against Jesus, and therefore we ought never to take it lightly. And yet, Jesus endured the cross. He endured the hostility of sinners against him. He endured the wrath of God due to those sinners, and he did it all Verse 2 tells us, for the sake of joy, for the joy that was set before him. So then, for us to not consider Jesus will lead to weariness and faint-heartedness in our sin as we try to run our race. And to consider Jesus will provide the opposite for us, endurance and joy in that race. So another way to say it, is that by considering Jesus, we will be helped 
in our ability to resist sin. That's the point of verse 4. Verse 4 says, in your struggle against sin. Now, I want to pause and linger there just for a moment to understand what's being assumed by the author even with those words. In your struggle against sin. He assumes that even for the believers to whom he's writing, he assumes that there will be an ongoing struggle with sin. So right here, you have biblical permission, you could say, to struggle with sin. The author admits that it will happen. He speaks of it as the reality that it is. So anyone who says to you that sin will not be a problem for real Christians is disagreeing with the New Testament. In your struggle against sin, there will be one. It's a real thing. But the other assumption that these words make is that believers will actively struggle against that sin, not passively submit to it. So when you wonder, does my struggle against sin mean that I'm not a Christian? The answer is no. Assuming that your struggle is indeed an active attempt to fight against sin and to overcome it and a willingness to repent when it overcomes you. So, the entire sentence of verse 4. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Which means, as difficult as your own fight against sin may become, it has not yet killed you. You haven't yet given your life to defeat sin. Jesus has... Jesus did resist sin to the point of shedding his own blood. At the cross, people reviled Jesus, saying, If you are the Son of God, save yourself. Come down from the cross. And he could have. But he didn't. He resisted sin to the point of shedding his own blood. And the author seems to be saying to us, if you ever did need to resist sin to the point of shedding your own blood, you could. You could stand in the face of forsaking Christ or giving your life and choose the latter. And even in less intense occasions of temptation, you can always resist sin more strongly and more fully than you think you can. So, look to Jesus. Even when you fully acknowledge your own failings, look to Him. C.S. Lewis illustrates this rather beautifully, in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, after 
Edmund had wandered and, and betrayed his family and then was brought back to them by Aslan, the witch says to Aslan, you have a traitor there. And Lewis says, of course, everyone present knew that she meant Edmund. But Edmund had got past thinking about himself after all he'd been through and after the talk he'd had that morning. He just went on looking at Aslan. It didn't seem to matter what the witch said. Which is why we sing things like, When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Where should we look? We look to Jesus. That's the first question we should ask. The second question we should ask is, What should I remember? What should I remember? The way this passage teaches us what to remember is by teaching us what not to forget. So he, the author asks in verse 5, Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? Have you, have you forgotten? Which is to say, don't forget them. Don't forget these exhortations. Remember them. And then he begins to cite and address multiple passages in the Old Testament that have to do with the way that God deals with his children who stray from the Father. And the primary way that he deals with them is summed up in the word discipline. What does God's discipline indicate? Verses 5 through 7, I think, contain the answer. So, verse 5 Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you like sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? So what does God's discipline indicate? God's discipline indicates that we are God's children. We are His sons and daughters. So, any discipline against your sin is meant by God not to endanger your standing before Him, but rather to assure you that you indeed are His so notice, in his discipline, God addresses you as sons. That's what verse 5 says. This is, and, he, and he quotes from Solomon, who's writing to his son in the book of Proverbs, but the writer of Hebrews uses it here to show that this is also how God addresses his children. So God addresses you as sons, and in his discipline, God treats you as sons. That's what verse 7 says. God's discipline is evidence both of His love toward us, you see that in verse 6, and of our sonship before Him. See that in verses 6 and 7. Therefore, do not regard lightly God's discipline. 
and do not forget God's exhortations. That's what God's discipline indicates. But what is His discipline for? What is it for? What's what's the purpose of it? We saw one answer in verse 7, that God's discipline is for endurance. He says in verse 7, it is for discipline that you have to endure. So just just as in anything in life that's worth pursuing, discipline is necessary in order to endure in it. And endurance happens within the discipline, in the discipline that has been exercised. So we're being told here to run a race. And we will run with endurance the race that is set before us, the way that Jesus endured the cross when we remember the discipline of the Lord. Jesus himself said to his followers that it is the one who endures to the end who will be saved in Matthew 24, 13. So discipline is for endurance. And discipline is for our good and it is for our holiness. You see this in verse 10. Verse 10, the author compares the discipline of earthly fathers with the discipline of the heavenly father. And you see it in verse 11 when he says that the discipline is said to yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness. He disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness, so that it might yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness. All of those things are tied together. Our endurance and our good and our holiness are the same ends, the same aims. And all of them are the purposes of God's discipline toward his children so that the peaceful fruit of righteousness will be yielded in us. That's the purpose of discipline. So, what should we do then? What are the commands of discipline? So, like, what does God's discipline demand of us? And I see three things it demands of us. The first one is this. Be strengthened. Be strengthened. See this in verses 12 and 13, where the author says, therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. He's taking these words from Isaiah's words to Israel in Isaiah 35. So as Israel waited for God's salvation, the author of Hebrews uses those words here as a way of saying that just as Israel would see the glory and majesty and salvation of God, so also we who are strengthened by God's discipline will be healed by Him. So be strengthened. Also, strive for peace and holiness. That's a command. That's what God's de- God demands in His discipline. Strive for peace and holiness. Verse 14, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. You want to see the Lord, you will strive for holiness. God has purposed that His discipline will lead to our holiness so that we are then enabled to strive for that holiness. Because without it, no one will see the Lord. 
God has provided everything that we need for holiness so that we might see him, therefore strive for that holiness. And the last command in verses 15 and 16, because of this need for holiness, we are commanded to see to it that no one is unholy. So so verse 15, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, and that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. So the logic of those verses goes something like this. Unholiness is caused by bitterness, and bitterness is evidence of a failure to obtain the grace of God. Therefore, a pursuit of holiness is evidence of the grace of God in your life. But notice, it doesn't simply say, see to it that you do not fail, or See to it that you are not unholy. It says, see to it that no one fails. See to it that no one is unholy. In other words, you and I are responsible for one another's holiness. I must see to it that you strive for holiness, and you must see to it that I strive for holiness. Holiness is a group effort. I've said to you before that if it were not for many of you in this room, I'm not sure I would still be a Christian because you have kept me pursuing holiness. And I thank you for that. So, what should I remember? I should remember that God has exhorted me to not lightly regard His discipline, which is proof of His love for me and my sonship towards Him, because that discipline is for my endurance, it's for my good, it's for my holiness. So therefore, I strive for holiness with other sons and daughters of God so that one day we will see the Lord. That's what I should remember. Now, I'll give you a word of comfort at this point. Those first two points are the longest ones. The other three are much shorter. Here we go. Number three, third question, where am I now? You should ask yourself, in your struggle with sin, where am I now? Because there's a clear contrast in verse 18. So, the first few words of verse 18, you have not come to, and then it explains where you're not. And then the first few words of verse 22, but you have come to, and then an explanation of where you, where you actually are. So where are you not? Where am I not? And where am I actually? Where am I now? And the picture is given of two mountains. That's how this is illustrated. So first, We are not at Mount Sinai. And you might say, thank you, Captain Obvious. But that's what he instructs here. 
That's the description that's given in verses 18 to 21. So I ask you, what is significant about Mount Sinai? What happened at Mount Sinai that is a big deal in the Bible? William. Okay, very good. So among the Ten Commandments, uh, the Lord spoke to his people and gave them his law, gave them his instructions for how they should display him to the other nations by obeying those instructions in that law. And notice what is said about this mountain and the instructions given there. So let's, let me read it, starting in verse 18. You have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them, for they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. So Mount Sinai isn't named there, but that's obviously what he's describing. He's describing the scene back in Exodus 19, and 20. And note, notice, notice what is said about those instructions. Verse 20, they could not endure the order that was given. Even the order for a beast to not touch the side of the mountain, they couldn't endure it. So if Hebrews 12 is helping us to know how to run with endurance the race that is set before us, how could we do that if even our spiritual forefathers could not endure the instructions given to them at Mount Sinai. They couldn't do it. How can we? Israel could not endure it. Their animals could not endure it. Even Moses could not endure it because Moses saw the terrifying sight and said, I tremble with fear. So, Praise the Lord, we've not come to Mount Sinai. We're not there. Because the orders given at Mount Sinai could not be endured by us either. If the demands of the law were placed on us, we could not endure it. Instead, verse 22, you have come to Mount Zion. If Sinai is a picture of the law... Zion is a picture of the gospel. Notice these descriptions. So starting in verse 22. You've come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels in feastal gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Where is the city of the living God? Where is Mount Zion? The author says it is the heavenly Jerusalem where angels feast and the church assembles and God judges and righteous men are made perfect. So it's as if the author is saying, you are already citizens of heaven. You have come to Mount Zion precisely because you did not come to Mount Sinai. Because a road paved with law-keeping will never lead to the celestial city. 
So by coming to this city, you have come to Jesus himself, the mediator of a new covenant. Moses mediated the old one. Jesus himself mediates the new one. So we come to him and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So stop and be stunned at this for a second because you would expect that you, you would expect it to say that the blood of Jesus speaks a better word than the offering of Cain. After all, Cain's offering was rejected and Abel's was accepted. But it doesn't say that. And this means that even the obedient blood sacrifice that was accepted by God was not sufficient for Abel to enter into this heavenly assembly. Even Abel needed a better blood sacrifice. Because like us, Abel could not endure the demands that would be given at Mount Sinai. And what... What this means for your struggle with sin and for mine is this. Our obedience still needs to be saved. Jesus died for our sins. That is gloriously true. But Jesus also died for all the ways that our obedience doesn't measure up to his standard of holiness. So, are you wandering in your sin? If so, don't despair, because Christ died for sinners. But are you obediently pursuing holiness? If so, don't be proud, lest you think that your holiness makes the cross unnecessary for you. So where am I now? If you are trusting in the sprinkled and shed blood of Jesus who endured what we could not, then you have come to Jesus who is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Number four. Fourth question. Who is speaking to me? Who is speaking to me? We're told in verse 5 to not forget what was spoken, and we're told in verse 25 to not refuse the one who is speaking. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. And we were just told in verse 24 that it is Jesus and his blood that are speaking. Let me read these verses, starting in verse 25. See that you do not refuse him who's speaking, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised yet once more, and I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of the things that are shaken, that is, the things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. So, let me me summarize what's being said there. God spoke at Sinai, and he could not be escaped. Jesus speaks from Zion, and what he says there also cannot be escaped. At Sinai, God's inescapable warnings shook the earth. Saw that described in verse 18 and 19. 
From Zion, Jesus' inescapable warnings will shake the heavens. And the shaken things will be removed so that the unshakable things will remain. So, God is at work through the blood of his Son to remove sin from his people and ultimately to remove sin from the universe. He will shake the heavens and the earth so that sin might be shaken out of the world like dust from a rug. Which leads to a question that we haven't actually considered yet, and that is this. What exactly is sin? What is it that God is working to remove from his people and will one day eradicate entirely from the new heavens and new earth? If we are to be fighting together against sin, we must be able to recognize what it is we are opposing lest we fight in vain. And the best definition of sin that I have heard comes from John Piper. So listen to this definition and see where it is that you tend to sin. He writes, Sin is the glory of God not honored, the holiness of God not reverenced, the greatness of God not admired, the power of God not praised, the truth of God not sought, the wisdom of God not esteemed, the beauty of God not treasured, the goodness of God not savored, the faithfulness of God not trusted, the commandments of God not obeyed, the justice of God not respected, the wrath of God not feared, the grace of God not cherished, the presence of God not prized, and the person of God not loved. And that definition, just like the warning in this passage, is given to sober us because God will one day shake heaven and earth. And if we think that we will escape being shaken, we are horribly mistaken. We must be at war with sin. God hates sin, and we must hate what he hates. In his wrath, God will rightly punish sin and sinners in hell forever. And in his mercy, he speaks to us through, his, through the blood of his Son to show us that he will one day fully and finally put sin out of his dwelling place to bring an end to what was guaranteed at the cross. So who, who is speaking to you? It is Jesus and his blood. So lastly, number five, how should I respond? How should I respond? Verse 28, Therefore, let us be grateful. Let us be thankful because we are receiving an unshakable kingdom. 
Verse 28 and 29, therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. The inheritance of the redeemed is the kingdom that cannot be shaken even when everything else in heaven and on earth is shaken. His kingdom is the one that will remain while all others are shaken and removed. And by the way, this is why we do missions. This is why we go to the nations. To tell them that their kingdoms cannot save them. That their gods cannot save them. Democracy cannot save Capitalism or socialism or communism cannot save. Politics and politicians cannot save. Kings and queens and princes cannot save. God will put all of those things under his feet and give to his children his kingdom that cannot be shaken. Therefore, let us be grateful. What does that gratefulness look like? How exactly would we express that kind of thankfulness, according to verse 28, it would look like acceptable worship with reverence and awe because God is a consuming fire. Which is to say that our gratefulness to God would look a lot like what it is we are attempting to do right now in this moment and what I have attempted to lead you in over hundreds of other moments in the past 10 years. So we are grateful to God that He has not consumed us. Therefore, we offer to Him acceptable and reverential worship because His dominion is an everlasting dominion that shall not be that shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. Therefore, let us be grateful. So, my little children, I say these things to you so that you may not sin. But if you sin, when you sin, you have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous, who gave himself as the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Let's pray. Lord God, Into your hands we commit ourselves. In Christ alone our hope is found. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck us from his hand. Our sins, they are many, but your mercy is more. Pray that Christ would receive all the glory. In his name we pray. Amen.